Hi, this is Jim Lobato, and I'm president and founder of a company called Performance Group. You're listening to the podcast version of a program that originally aired on the BizTalk radio show. I started BizTalk so you'd have access to today's leading experts about growing your company and yourself. BizTalk is produced by Performance Group. At Performance Group, we work at the front end of a company's revenue stream. We find the salespeople who generate the revenue, and we provide onboarding programs that get them doing that sooner. Our passion is aligning talent with opportunity. That's why we're known as a Salesforce development company. Enjoy the program. On our program today, we have award-winning journalist and best-selling author, Poe Bronson. He has published six books, including the New York Times bestseller, Nutrishock, co-authored with Ashley Merriman. Poe was written for television, magazines, and newspapers, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and for NPR's Morning Edition. Poe is a featured speaker on college campuses and community town hall events. We are fortunate Poe was willing to share his insights on his latest book, also co-authored by Ashley Merriman, Top Dog, The Science of Winning and Losing, an in-depth look into the science of competition and the game-changing insights that can help you tap into your inner top dog. Poe, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me. Much appreciated. Okay, so I have to ask, Poe, the, yeah. the topic of competition, because it's been my experience that the most competitive people are drawn to the most competitive fields, including athletics as well as in business. So what was the genesis behind studying how competition plays into us winning and losing? Well, a variety of things. One is, first of all, just talking about people being drawn to something. This is a topic that I've been interested in my whole life. I'm a writer. I haven't had a job, per se, since 1994. But I'd been a serial entrepreneur before that. And growing up, I'd been drawn to sports, been drawn to business been drawn to all sorts of domains of competition, math teams, chess teams, played college soccer, was a Wall Street bond salesman, had a big investment bank, then a serial entrepreneur. And so very much this was something I was just always drawn to. But then specifically, my son, who at the time was, when we started the book, he was just started fourth grade. And he was a good soccer player. We built a select soccer team of really great talents from streets of San Francisco, and I was so amazed how, no matter how good these kids were in practice, how they were as players, they couldn't necessarily manifest it in a game when challenged, when having to compete, when they were being judged, when they were being watched, when someone was going at them full speed. And you saw very divergent outcomes. You saw some kids who were pretty good in practice, who were amazing in games and kids who were phenomenal in practice who just couldn't handle the stress and pressure of games. And I wanted to help them, and I was curious why intellectually, and began to discover some answers that I felt like resonated not just with the kids' soccer team, but, you know, across all of society, across all spans of competition. And that was sort of the origin point. You know, with our last book, Nurture Shock, we had written and popularized the science of praise for New York Magazine. And there it was all about how you talk to kids and how you teach them that it's all about how hard you work and it's not just about talent. And the more I learned, the more I felt like, even though that became extremely popular, and today most kids across the country are told, oh, you did great, you worked really hard. You know, we emphasize all the time how hard they work. But the truth is, it's more than that. It's not just how hard they work, it's how they think, how they feel, how they handle competition. 
And this transcends it to our adult lives. And it just became the natural topic for me to explore in the book. Thank you for that background. And I was wondering, when I read the book and I walked away with this, I thought, what is the biggest misperception about winning and losing? You know, I think people who compete know this. I think that the listeners today, they know the answer, just as I can say it. But in our society, we we mischaracterize. i got to tell you, I've been on tour for 10 weeks on this book, traveling around the country. And there are a lot of people, way more than I was expected, who are really kind of down on competition down on winning and losing. They think it destroys the psyche. They think it destroys self-esteem. They think comparing yourself to others is somehow cheap. And they don't seem to understand the basic thing, which is that people enjoy competing. It's fun. And both winner and loser, by competing, get better. Forced to compete, people pull out of themselves extra levels of energy and effort and creativity and intuition that they wouldn't if they were just doing it for themselves or just motivating themselves to work as hard as they could. And it's competition that makes us better. And, yes, some win and some lose, but everybody gets better under the force of competition. So the, the biggest mistake is underthinking that it's all about the winning or the losing or that somehow losing is tarnishing people and, and they have to protect them from losing when couldn't be couldn't be more the case the other way. You know, if you think about it on a large scale, everything we ever did in life took taking a risk. Everything, every job we took, every college we applied to, every business we started, every investment we made, getting married, moving to this country, these are all risks people take. To take that risk means you're not afraid of losing. Learning to lose and move on in our childhoods, in our backgrounds, is essential to not being afraid of the consequences of losing. And if you haven't learned to win and lose, you won't take the risks that lead to our greatest accomplishments. In the, you won't take those risks in the first place. Are you surprised at the resistance to this feeling that competition is bad? Yeah, I was. I mean, I think in our society, I sort of, I mean, I know that there's, you know, a few, hey, you know, children's preschools out there where they're like, oh, a kid's too competitive. He wants to beat people. You know, I understood that. But I didn't understand how much, you know, kind of at a larger community level, obviously people hear competition and they, and one of two, they associate often a couple of downsides. One is that competition induces stress. And they think that stress is bad for them. And, in in fact, I can go into that later, but that's not necessarily true. Short-term stress actually improves performance, not hurts performance. The other thing is when they hear competition, they think of competitiveness, and they don't think of healthy competition. Their mind immediately flashes to what we call in the book the maladaptive competitor, someone who keeps dragging other people into competitions even though they don't want to be in them, someone who can never turn it off, someone who has to win at all costs. Essentially, they think of people who cheat. And I don't disagree that that can happen, but it's not competition that leads people to be cheaters. It's, it's they'd be cheating even if they weren't competing. If they don't have to, you know, if they were doing their taxes is not a competition, they might cheat on their taxes. 
You know, it's just something about how people look in, at the world, but it's not the competition that's inducing the cheating. I was just kind of surprised nationwide how many people feel like competition is a destructive force in our society and that somehow there's winners and losers and that's hurting people rather than helping everybody. It really was. So, Poe, in, in the work that we do at Performance Group, which a lot of that is recruiting top-performing salespeople and VPs of sales and account managers and such like, one of the questions we ask to gauge how competitive someone is, especially when they're going into a competitive sales situation, we ask them the question is, do you like to win or hate to lose, if you had to pick between the two? And really interesting question. So go on. Which is the right answer? Well, the answer... In your your way you guys interpret it. Really interesting. The way we interpret it is we're looking for hate to lose. Mm -hmm. And we had Don Yeager on the program here recently, and he wrote a book on the 16 characteristics of high-performance individuals. And these came from interviewing athletes. And I threw that out to Don, and he came back and said, I'll guarantee every top athlete says hate to lose. But we hear both sides of that. I mean, that one question alone is not going to get you hired or not hired, right? It's right. in context sure, sure. of everything. Right. But, but I'm, I was intrigued by your book because you have a chapter in the book, The Difference Between Winning and Not Losing, which right. is kind of close to that. <laughs> no, 100% that. I mean, it's what is the difference there? And, and as we argue in the book, they're entirely different neural systems and different brain systems and networks that are recruited and are activated in the different circumstances. All right, so just share with our audience then your insight on that difference between winning and not losing. Well, it's so interesting that, you know, you sort of, one is labeled as better or worse, generally speaking. Only in the context, I'll put this in the context of very competitive sales roles or where we feel that the company really doesn't have the product or positioning upper hand, therefore the salesperson has to be stronger than the actual product, if that makes sense. Right. So when we put it in that context, we said, man, we, we really kind of need somebody here who hates to lose. And they'll, once, because if they lose, they'll pick themselves up, figure out what they did wrong, and, and right. so, try not to so do it again. It's interesting, you know, if you can, one, one difference, say, say, between sales and between sports. Okay. In sports, a team or a scorer or, or a defender in any sport, position wise, can, can there's often a, a, ta- a league table of sort of standings, you know. And, and, and just like on the schoolyard, there's a difference between being last or being near the last and being actually first. There's a lot of participants, right? And in sales, there are many companies as well, and there are companies doing better and doing worse and selling more and selling less. But with any one particular sale, there's a winner and a loser, you know, there's, there's a winner, and then everybody else didn't get the sale. Yeah, everybody else is in second place. <laughs> right. And so, so that, in a sense, they're the same outcome. Why not? In sports, they could actually have mean actually mean different outcomes. But from a neurological and systems perspective, think of it as a basketball player who's a phenomenal defender might 
really want to win the game. But he sees defense as the best way to win the game, and that's different, per se, than maybe someone who has to be the risk taker, someone who's going to perhaps turn the ball over more, miss a few more shots, but try to get hot is because they really want to win the game. So you can have, in a sense, strategies where you take more risk or strategies where you sort of take less risk, manage every detail, avoid mistakes as a tactic towards winning. And so neurologically, those are what the two different approaches are. One is where you're willing to take risks, you feel disinhibited. It's okay to lose, but you're going for the big score. And that's different than playing in a way or doing business in a way where your goal is to make sure you say please a customer by not doing anything offensive. Provide every possible option and let them choose. You know, not go necessarily, never put your prices too high or quote too high a price or something because you're afraid you might lose the sale, even if you might get a higher commission. So in the end, really it's decided by the sales context. You know, selling a small margin, high unit item might be very different than a big ticket item. But let's still just go into it. Let's still go into it in a little bit more depth, you know. We have biological predispositions towards taking risk, and I can, I can go into that. We also have a sort of a lifetime of habits where through habits and through years and years of working, you stay rooted in high performance and you understand what it takes and you're able to pull yourself out of that kind of on a daily basis. Creativity is different. Creativity requires disinhibition. So if that sales environment requires you to sort of be creative in any particular way, well, you can't be worried about making mistakes if you have to be creative. But sometimes allowing people to be creative leads to a lot of mistakes, and that's actually really not not good for somebody. So it's very interesting to hear that that, that thing. But, that, you know, I sort of think of them as two sides of the same coin. There's no right answer. There's no better answer. Women golfers, pro golfers, in the most highly prized tournaments, they try to win and are successful at winning by taking fewer risks and making less mistakes. Male golfers, on average, tend to win the majors by taking more risks. And you can't just play it safe to win a major in the men's competition. The biggest question why is why. It's not that men are different than women. It's that the prizes in men's golf are so much bigger than the prizes in women's golf. The difference between first and second place in men's golf is a lot more money than it is in women's golf. And so you're really rewarded for winning in men's golf in a way that in women's golf you're still kind of rewarded for second place. The science of winning and losing, that's our topic tonight on BizTalk. Our guest is Poe Bronson. We're talking about his book, Top Dog. For more resources on winning in your career and in your business, go out to our website, biztalkradioshow.com. You can download podcasts from all of our previous experts. The experts are willing to share their wisdom and insight on topics that range from sales and marketing to performance management to getting the competitive edge. Those topics are covered on BizTalkRadioShow.com. Okay, Paul, to summarize, here's what I've heard you say so far. Part of this winning and losing, you would have to evaluate the risk potential, 
you'd have to take into account, like you said, a lifetime of habits. And then you said in situations where creativity is involved, maybe you have to be creative in problem solving, or it truly really is a creative type of job. You have to be predisposed to disinhibition, right? Is that what you said? Right. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. I'm sitting here listening to you wonder, if I'm leading a team, are these the factors I take into account as I put my team members together, or is there more to it than that? I think these are exactly the, the factors you put together in, you know, in a team situation. So simplified version of this is what happened in the trucking industry. Okay. Trucking industry was highly deregulated. You know, it was smoking the bandit days, and you could race across the country and make a lot of cash quickly as a trucker. And the trucking industry was full of those types of people who were drawn to that freedom and lifestyle. Then the trucking industry became suddenly highly regulated. And along with that regulation came losses. The companies were losing a lot of money. And they blamed the regulation. And then basically some consultants like yourself came in and said, well, look, the kind of people you have who are truckers were for a different era. Today, you have to, to be a trucker. You need to be a rules follower. You know, you're, you're being told you cannot make a seven-hour drive in five hours. If you arrive in five hours, you're going to suffer a huge financial penalty. So you have to self-police. You have to be someone who follows the rules. You have to like order, like regularity. And the trucking industry began to hire different types of people, people with the type of character who fit the new profile of this type of work. And the profits came back to the trucking industry. And they had to pick different types of people. So in the same thing in sales, same thing in the sales environment, they're not all the same. Everybody in some ways is a salesperson, according to our friend Dan Pink in his book. And everybody has contact with customers. And in all these ways, these different dimensions come out, and you have to sort of pick a team with those different personalities to make it work. The science of teams says that, the best, well, the best thing you do for a team is to keep it as small as possible to get the job done. But the second best thing you can do for any team is role clarification, understanding who does what and not expecting everybody to be the same on a team, but let them play their roles and let those pieces work together correctly. And in that sense, in a, in a sales environment or management environment, you need to find the pieces that come together in a way that produce and not expect really all the staff to be the same type of temperament. They would never never succeed that way. Talk to our audience about what you write in the book, sticking with our your comments on teams, the hierarchy of teams. What did you mean by that? Well, we're talking about role clarification. You know, there is this idealized notion of teams in our society in which Teams are this egalitarian force. Everybody has a voice on a team. People on a team can trade places. They all mutually respect each other. And there's this idealized notion that on some level, you know, everybody on a team is the same. We're all equal, and we get paid as a team, we work as a team, and, you know, nobody's better than anybody else. And that egalitarian notion is a huge distraction, according to the science. 
science says that, first of all, stars are really important on a team. Star physicists produce 60% of all the published academic papers in physics. A star immunologist raises his or her peers' research production 30%. Stars on a basketball team, every day at practice, if you were on Miami Heat and every day at practice you had to guard LeBron James and go against LeBron James, you get pretty good. You know, you, 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 you find yourself comparing yourself to the star, and it raises your standards. The trick is that stars are very hard to recruit to teams. Stars think of teams as black holes. Stars think of them as other people who want to take credit for their work. A scholar did this amazing research. She ran a whole bunch of classified ads in newspapers, and then, and all these ads were designed for job positions for people coming out of graduate, professional graduate schools. And the, in half the ads, the word teamwork was in there, and half the ads it wasn't. And then she showed all these ads. She had natural experiments, saw who wrote in and sent in their resumes, but she also showed these to thousands upon thousands of new graduates from graduate schools and asked them which jobs they were interested in. And the word teamwork drastically lowered the quality of the job applicants. Stars are repelled by teamwork in their mind. You know, so to recruit a star to a team, it requires convincing them, not that they need to join a team, they need to do teamwork, it needs to convince them that with a team's support and working with a team, they'll accomplish more than they ever would on their own. And so the hierarchy of teams is, is about the fact that you have to break apart the roles on a team. Let there be LeBron Jameses and let there be, you know, backup shooting guards. And let everybody know their roles and team performance will significantly improve. That's interesting because I can't wait to read Phil Jackson's book he just came out with. Yeah. I think it's 11 rings or something like that, whatever it is. You know, I'm old enough to remember Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan and those players. And, and Scottie Pippen will tell you I'm a better player because of Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan said I was a better player because of Scottie Pippen. Yeah. Now, to your exactly. point, what you're talking about. Right, and so you also write in your book that women need even odds and men don't. Right. And you drew reference to that we all have a biological disposition towards risk is that gender related or why do women need even odds and men eh, really don't care <laughs> so on on average it's true on average women need good odds men are good at ignoring the odds men don't see risk very well women spot risk way better than men so in some fields for instance on wall street female financial analysts this is a study of three million different earnings projections made over every single earnings projection for 15 years, 20,000 stocks, 20,000 stock analysts, found that female financial analysts' earnings projections are 7.3% more accurate than men's earning projections. They spot the risks of companies and can see them and make better projections. Men, on some level, are biased to miss some of those risks. But in another field, such as politics, where entering a political race is a great unknown, 
and you don't know if you're going to win or you're going to lose. It turns out that, you know, I mean, in, in the United States of America in 2012, only four American women in the entire country, out of 880 million American women, only four filled out any sort of paperwork to run for governor in 2012. They're avoiding races where they don't think that they can win. When the odds of winning are below 20%, almost all political candidates will be men. And when the odds get up to 30 or 40%, more women will jump into the race than men will. Women are responsive to the odds. Men aren't. But this is on average. And there is dimensions about the biological predisposition to take risks that transcend gender. They look like gender, but they're not actually gender. Well, let me give you an example. <laughs> not if you're driving, but look at your right hand. Hold out your right hand, straighten out the fingers, and you're looking at the index finger, the one closest to the thumb. Skip the middle finger, and then looking at the ring finger on your right hand. And you're looking at which is longer, the ring finger or the index finger of your right hand. Well, I'm looking right now. Aren't they the same? No, and everybody, they're a little bit different. Okay. On mine, the ring finger's considerably longer. Oh, mine is, uh, mine's slightly edge out. The ring finger wins by hair. <laughs> by a little bit. Well, every little bit matters. And this is, this is actually formed in the womb and when we are developing fetus, and it's also a biomarker for differences in our limbic brains, and it's our biological predisposition to take risk. And not that a lifetime of habits doesn't also matter, but... Right there, if you have a longer ring finger, you are more biologically predisposed to take risk. And this is show this core that that right there study of 3,000 Italian entrepreneurs predicted the size of their company and the growth rate of their company. In the city of London, that very ratio right there predicted how much profit traders made. At the University of Chicago studies of what their graduates from their business school and what careers they go into, people with longer ring fingers are much more likely, dramatically more likely to go into risky, volatile careers versus sort of safe and conservative careers. It's quite amazing. The length of the fingers is, is just the thing that changes the length of our fingers before we're even born also changes our brain, and that becomes permanent. And what's interesting here is that for men, two-thirds of men will have longer ring fingers than index fingers. But one-third of women will have longer ring fingers than index fingers. And so, you, you know, what I said about the averages about men and women may not be true for any one particular man or any particular, one particular woman. Certainly one-third of women are biologically predisposed to take risks and two-thirds not. So there's certainly, that's why we certainly have Women politicians unafraid to run in off run for office, and women entrepreneurs unafraid to take on the long odds of starting a company. Thanks for joining in on the conversation. Our guest is Poe Bonson. We're talking about his book, Top Dog, The Science of Winning and Losing. If you want to win the game of sales, there's plenty of resources out on our website at biztalkradioshow.com. That's B-I-Z, talkradioshow.com as well as podcasts of all of our previous guests that have appeared here on BizTalk. Poe, you mentioned several times the risk factor, taking risk. How important is that in us becoming top dogs in our field? 
Well, you know, in a business setting, it's really interesting, right? Because on one hand, we would like to say we're very good at judging risk and analyzing risks. Business analysis is one of our most vital tools, right? On the other hand, being able to improvise, being unafraid of taking a risk, believing in your company and believing in yourself and believing you're going to figure it out is what entrepreneurship's about. Maybe you have a business plan, but things don't go according to plan. You know, studies of great entrepreneurs, or, or in fact all entrepreneurs, show that one of the traits they have is not so much their ability to plan, it's their ability to replan, to rewrite their plans continuously and communicate the new plan to their company. And in that sense, to sort of improvise with their planning. And so we're torn between whether being a really good judge of the financial risks is a good thing or a bad thing. It does depend on the setting and the industry. You know, we, we wrote about the company Westinghouse, which one of its big divisions now is in, is in nuclear plants, nuclear plant construction and refurbishing. That's an industry where you don't want to make mistakes. It's a Six Sigma bent industry. It's focused on ha having as few mistakes as humanly possible. If they ever make an actual mistake with a nuclear reactor, it's a seven-year process to document it and correct it. Now, you don't want to have mistakes in that industry. In a different industry, you maybe have to you win some and lose some, but you win big. In the venture capital industry, famously, one out of ten companies is a 10x return, and it pays for all the rest. So, Poe, if you were with a business leader today, the one piece of advice you'd be giving them would be what? To remind the people who work for you that it's fun to compete. That we talk about competition as stressful. It's hard. It's stressful. You know, I was in Detroit, Gross Point, where the auto executives live back in the fall, and I was hearing stories from the, at the local golf club from the members about every year they, they you know, have to compete so hard, and every year they, they're evaluated, and they would, you know, the stress would be so bad, they would, they would throw up out the window of their car on the way to work that morning. And we have in our society, we tell a story to ourselves that stress is bad for performance. Ah, oh, how are you doing? Not doing very well. I was stressed. How how was your work day today? I didn't do very well. I was all stressed. This this is a story that the science doesn't back up. The science actually says there's long-term stress is bad for you. There is such a thing as real distress. But normal stress, the kind of things we label as bad is actually good for performance. Stress is your body's response to being challenged. It's your body providing more energy. Everybody knows the feeling of when you're stressed, you have to feel like you want to walk it off. It's because your body's pumped up. It's filling you up with energy and ready to supply. Your, your blood vessels throughout your entire body dilate. Your, blood, your heart's pumping. Your blood volume goes up two or threefold. Your brain relaxes and the reward networks tune up and the fear networks tune down. And this is a, a great performance state to be in. It's not quite the zone or flow, but it's stress state is a high performance state. The best example of this was by Jeremy Jameson, a scholar at University of Rochester. And he did this study at Harvard. 
And they took Harvard undergraduates who were almost done with what the undergraduate, and they were studying for the graduate record exam. And to these Harvard students, how well they did on this test, and these are very smart students, how well they did on that test would determine what graduate school they went to. So for them, it was very nerve-wracking, very stressful. And they were all training for this, and he gave them a practice test, and for half of them, he told them new science shows that if you're stressed, it can actually improve performance. It may not hurt your performance. If you're stressed out or anxious or panicky today, it may actually be helping you do better. The students who did not hear that, the control students, scored 700 on that graduate record exam, 700 out of 800. But those who got that prompt, who were told stress might be good for your performance, scored 750 out of 800. Now, that was a practice test. Did it matter on the real test, the real GRE? Two months later, they took the real GRE. Those who had been primed or taught to believe that stress is good for you scored 760 points on the actual GRE on average, 760 out of 800. Well, people need to know that, that stress is not a bad thing. Stress is there for you to help you perform better, and you need to make that connection. So embrace it. Embrace it and enjoy it. Enjoy competing. You know, our lives are un, it's a, competing is the one part of our lives where it's unscripted. We don't know if we're going to win or lose. We don't know if we're going to make that sale. And so much of our lives is scripted. It happens repeatedly. It's repetitive. It's on some level becomes mundane over time. And the areas of our life where we get to compete or watch competition or watch sports are fun because we don't know the outcome. And it's fun to have to compete. And, hey, you lose some, it's fun. Keep going. Poe, is there one question tonight I should have asked you that I haven't? No. Well, thank you. So if people want to learn more about Top Dog, the science of winning and losing, where would they go? Topdogbook.com is our website or Facebook, Facebook slash Topdogbook. The biggest feedback you've gotten from the book that has surprised you has been what? As I mentioned at the top, at the, top of the interview, the, the biggest feedback that has surprised me has been how much of our society tends to just think on a daily basis of a competition as a bad thing. The material itself that most surprised me when before you know before the book came out and we were researching it was that there were on average differences between men and women in competition not in how hard they compete once they compete but in whether they choose to compete and take risks in the first place i was not prone to believing in that kind of stuff i thought that was sort of probably bunk but when i saw the science i thought these gaps are too big to ignore and we are all losers if we don't learn from it Poe, thanks for being on the program. Thank you very much. Much appreciated. This or other BizTalk podcast may be downloaded by visiting our website, biztalkradioshow.com, where you can subscribe to BizTalk through iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at BizTalk1040 and like us on Facebook. If you want to learn the strategies finding and getting performance out of A-player salespeople, contact Performance Group by calling 800-950-9509 or visit us on the web at pmgllc.net. This has been your host, Jim Lovato.